If you somehow forgot to pick up a turkey, here's a last-minute solution, courtesy of Popular Mechanics reader Roy H. Poston of Flat River, Missouri. Get yourself a piece of well-seasoned cherry wood and cut a deep but narrow well into it. Rub some resin on the rim of that, then get a second piece of wood, like basically the size and shape of a paint stirrer, and nail one end to the cherry so that it covers that well. If you rub that back and forth over the opening, you got a turkey call. Roy sent that in 1917, by the way. On today's show, we're going to bring in a more modern-day Roy, senior home editor Roy Berenson, to talk about another unconventional Thanksgiving emergency solution. And we'll tell you about some of the stuff we're thankful for, like the new movie Creed II. Director Stephen Capel Jr. joins the show to tell us just how DIY boxing can be. Next, funny car driver Ron Cap stops by and tells us about some of the stuff he's thankful for, like 8,000 horsepower and bragging rights about withstanding more G-forces than a jet fighter pilot. Finally, Peter Martin comes in to teach us how to pick a laptop on Black Friday and, yet again, tries to get us to buy a TV. Peter's actually here a lot today. Jackie's out, so it's kind of the Peter and Kevin show. Hope you enjoy it. It's going to be great. I'm not even going to try a hey, y'all. But this is the most useful podcast ever. So my guest today is Stephen Capel Jr., the director of the new movie Creed II, which is out today. It's the sequel to 2015's Creed, which is about Adonis Creed, who has a family history with Rocky Balboa, you might say. Thanks for joining, Stephen. Thank you for having me. This is a cool movie. I got to go see a screening. And, uh, you know, if you're just into boxing, it's a great boxing movie. If you're into the Rocky stuff, it's got old Rocky, who's a great character. And if you saw Creed, which was also an awesome movie, I mean, you're getting everything you want. You get more Adonis, you get more Bianca. It's great. It's really fun. Yeah, no, I mean, that definitely was one of the challenges when stepping into the project is to make sure that, you know, obviously coming off of Creed 1, like you said, was a great film, that you do get enough of the characters that you love, you know? I mean, at the end of the day, when looking at the franchise in general, the Rocky and Creed franchise, I feel like that's why everyone comes back, to see where the characters are, to touch bases, see their arcs, you know, where they're at in life and, and some of the challenges. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. You know, I think there's a bit of that nostalgia that you pull from the other films. And then, yeah, there's a fresh take on where they're at today and where they're going. Yeah, I really liked about the first film, and I thought Creed II did a great job of continuing this, is that it's so much about somebody figuring out who they are and kind of figuring out how to define themselves through the challenges in their life. And this movie really picked up where that left off in a cool way. That was one of my worries when when stepping into the sequel to make sure that we didn't go too far ahead. You know what I mean? (laughs) To the point where you don't get to see some of these moments and share these growing pains in their relationships. And so I didn't want to, you know, start off obviously with, you know, this guy in a big mansion or anything like that. I want you to grow with them, you know, yeah. um, in their relationships and see the maturity within them. That's where I feel like I was all the drama is and where it lies. Yeah. So um, this is Popular Mechanics, and we're kind of obsessed with how everything works. So i got to ask you a couple questions about filming this, because it seems like every other movie nowadays is a superhero movie, which has a lot of action, but three-quarters of the stuff on the screen is computer-generated and the people are wearing costumes. But I want to know how you shoot these boxing right. scenes, because this is just like two dudes in shorts. How do you make this look so real? I mean, one, it starts with the story, right? It's like trying to figure out what each fight, what's the arc. What's the story you're trying to tell behind the characters? What are those corner moments? And so in the script, you're really developing a lot of what the fight is made of, the DNA. Like, what's the identity? Once you develop, like, the fight and the characters, then you start to go into visual style and representation, like how you display this, how do you get across the fact that this guy is very aggressive and strong and wouldn't wait. And so that's when the pacing and style comes into play and then the sound. And then you're really just in a box on the sound stage. <laughs> that's the crazy part. You know, you're surrounded by green screen. But then you also have this elevated intensity when you have um, 2,000 people who are extras 
or background who are troopers, by the way, who stand there <laughs> and watch the fight in real time. You know, you played out one round after another, so that way it feels real to the audience. You're seeing the story unfold, and then you have these guys yelling on their feet after every take, you know, during the fight. So the boxers, uh, a.k.a. Michael B. Jordan and Florian, can feel the electricity, I guess, throughout the audience and feel that energy. Also, yeah. it feels like you're really in a boxing match. Yeah, which I bet gets the actors amped up, too, to get that kind of feedback. So these guys— yeah, so, so for and it's dangerous, too. Okay, so that was my next question because, you know, you mentioned Michael B. Jordan. I think pretty much everybody knows who he is, but a lot of people might not be familiar with Florian, who's sort of the his nemesis in this movie. And these guys are both huge. I can't imagine these actors are really taking punches mm-hmm. that are as hard as they look. Like, how do you make that convincing? You do both. I think uh, you don't want them to take real punches. You want to fake it, fake it as much as possible. But when you have someone like Florian, who's boxed before, and he's now learning how to movie box, which he's trying to hold his punches back, you're bound to have some accident, you know. And again, like you said, with the crowd being live, it amps up the acts of the actors. They get really into it. And if you've seen the film, a lot of the stuff is very emotional. There's a lot of history between these two boxers. Mm-hmm. It's not just a boxing match. It's not just who's going to win. Like, they're trying to take each other's heads off. So they're in the ring. They're getting hit a lot, you know what I mean, by accident alone. And then there's moments where I point out that are either a slow motion shot or a specialty shot in which they're going to have to get hit because you can't really cheat those. So you try to take the precaution, but it's painful. It's definitely many times where Florian was sent to the hospital twice. What? Um, yeah, I had to take a half a day off his knee. And so it plays a huge burden on their on their bodies, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and they have to have this sort of chemistry with each other in the ring because obviously it's really dangerous. So it's like a dance. It's like a tango or whatever. They got to know where the other person's foot's going to be what emotion that person's going through. Man, it's, it's crazy. And Florian is so big that even his blocks hurt, which is something I didn't realize until stepping in the ring with Florian and going over choreography. He would, like, imitate a punch, and I would block it, and I'd be like, well, you can really feel his power. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, definitely. It was a lot, man. Yeah, and Flo went to the hospital twice. One for injury in the shoulder, for swinging so hard. Jeez. <laughs> and just exhaustion, man. Exhaustion. These dudes really go through it, man. If you look at a boxing match, you're looking at probably like 45 minutes. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? If that at a boxing match, four rounds, 12 rounds. Whereas this one, they're doing it all day. They're doing multiple takes on one round. Necessarily. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's heavy. The punch sound effects. I remember reading, I think it was like a Roger Ebert review of Fight Club or something, where he mentioned that he made some joke offhand about like sound effects guys hitting a couch with ping pong paddles. Where do you get the sound effects from for the punches in this movie? Yeah, we got the song from a really cool Foley company that's outside of, uh, I believe, the United States. Yeah, they have their own method, but what they do is they capture, like, maybe six or seven different kind of sounds, and they layer them up on top of each other. So what you're hearing is not really necessarily one punch. It's, like, seven oh, different interesting. punches. You know, and that could be punching a leather glove, like a baseball mitt, you know what I mean, with your mm-hmm. bare fist. Yeah. That's one way to do it. It could be actually punching a punching bag. There's also the element of the swing itself, so that could be... Like, you know how you swing a hanger or something like that? You hear the whoosh sound. like Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, like this little small whip. So you incorporate those in it, those layers behind the sound when it actually had impact. I think for this film, it was tough because Drago was so big, and we wanted to feel like a real boxing match, but at the same time, I also wanted a little flesh behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, actually, that's a great question. I should have asked the Foley part, but what they use to get the flesh sound, because you can really feel it with every time Michael B. Jordan gets hit. Oh, yeah. 
you can really feel it. Okay, so you mentioned the punching bag. This is the other thing I have to ask about as a popular mechanics person. So there's a, a sequence in the movie. It's kind of a key sequence. I won't say too much, but Adonis is training, and he goes to this gym. It's out in the desert, and it's sort of a DIY mm -hmm. gym. It's like there's a heavy bag where it's like a chain with a bunch of car tires on it. Was that yes. like an existing real place you guys found, or did you design that? Like, where'd that idea come from? We designed it. Fly had the idea of going out to the desert. He felt like that would be a nice callback to Rocky Four because they went to uh, the snow, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was his idea. And then the workouts, I started looking up workouts, you know, in Thailand. You know, what do they do with their matches, what they do out there with training. And that's where I actually took that idea from. With Thailand, they had used tires for it and used it bare knuckle. And they would just go at it. And that was really interesting to me. And so uh, that particular work I got from there, there's a, also a boxer there named DJ who's in the film. He's in the ring boxing with Michael B. Jordan mm -hmm. inside this tire. And I saw him doing that with his son. He's an actual trainer, the guy he's in the yeah. tire with. And I brought him out there to show us how to do it. But then while he was there, I was like, you know what? You're built. Your physique is perfect. Why not just be the actor? And so <laughs> he helped us that. You know, and it's basically like two guys in a tire you're working on the body. You're not allowed to hit in the face. But in choreography, you can't fake those body punches. Mm -hmm. So these guys are really going at it. Him and DJ were like, really, that was a different kind of energy in the desert because when you're pressed for time and yeah. so you're trying to move really fast, so you can't really go over choreography because choreography can take weeks to remember. And so really, you're just like, box. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, they were going at it, man. Mike could tell you he took some really short hits in the desert. <laughs> Yeah, so, okay, so they box with one foot in a tire. There's the tire heavy bag. There's, like, a part where he has, like, dig a hole, basically, with a sledgehammer. Were there any other kind of, like, homemade yeah, techniques you came across that you thought were pretty, whether they made it to the movie or not, that you thought were kind of cool? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you have the tire technique. You had the sprinting with the Mustang. That was scary as hell. That took most of the time because you had a slide behind the Mustang chasing down a Donald's Creed. And it also <laughs> is, like, a huge callback to Rocky One and Rocky Two. Where Rocky would have these like sprints. He would start off jogging, then sprint, and he would stay with him for a long amount of time. And I just felt like it was really cool the fact that we incorporated the Mustang, which was used to be Apollo's Creed Mustang. And we were out in the desert in the heat, so there's a callback to Rocky Four and all these elements, man, that were really just cool. And that was one of my favorite moments because obviously I just loved the franchise, and I just felt like that was a really cool callback. Well, that's awesome, and I mean, Sly's great in the movie. Michael B. Jordan's great in the movie. It's a lot of fun. Stephen Capel Jr., thanks again for joining. Everybody should check out Creed 2, which is out today. Uh, thank you for having me, bro. It's really cool. All right, yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right, so Peter Martin's here. I feel like half your segments are trying to get other people to spend money on TVs. Mostly because I am waiting so desperately until I can buy a new TV. So right now our TV, everyone's How old is yours? It's 10 years old. And it still works great. It's a plasma. It's a 720p, which is not obviously the best because now there's 4K and all this other stuff, but it's fine. It works great for what we yeah. do. It's not broken, and it just seems crazy to just upgrade and get a new TV when it's not broken. I know. Mine's about the same age. Maybe it's the same TV. Mine's like a 40-inch LG. Yours yeah. is probably bigger. But same thing. 42. It's just getting so old. I know every TV I watch now is better, but mine still functions it fine. It still works great. You, know? you can still yeah. watch TV. But once it just doesn't turn on anymore, then I can finally buy it. So anyway, I love to help other people buy TVs. <laughs> I really do get excited when friends are like, I need a TV, and then I can look around and get the one that I wanted to get. Dan Dubno, one of our contributors, last year wanted a new TV, and there was a great deal on an OLED TV, which is the same kind that I'm excited about this year. I think it was 2000 bucks last year. Yeah. And he bought it 
had no real idea what he was getting into and just like kept texting me all weekend with how excited he was about how good the TV was. He was That's just amazing. watching football and he was so, and that makes you feel good because you made this guy spend $2,000 right? Yeah. and he's not annoyed at you for like, I mean, I could have bought a $300 TCL and have been happy with that too, which is also a good TV. But yeah. Wait, so what's OLED? Our listeners might know, but I don't. So it's organic light emitting diode. So the most TVs are either LCD based or well, they're all LCD based now because nobody makes plasma anymore. And so those are the little liquid crystals that have to get lit up by some sort of source behind them. Okay. And the difference in a lot of TVs, it either is on the edges of the TV trying to light up the entire thing. So obviously it's easier to light the pixels that are near the edge than it is in the middle to turn those on and off. Yeah. And then there's full array backlit TVs where there are lights behind every single part of the back of the TV so that it can turn on the different local parts, which is good when you have a dark part of a screen, you want to turn off the backlighting right behind that thing. Yeah. Just so that you actually get real blacks instead of the like grays. Right. You get it looks a bit. Yeah. But OLEDs or OLED TVs, they can emit their own light. So you don't need a backlighting source, which also means the TV can be literally like credit card thin. Wow. Um, the actual screen portion is credit card thin. It's still like the brain of it still has maybe an inch wide section near the base of the TV. But yeah. it's crazy. And also the picture is amazing. Yeah. Um, it looks kind of 3D without being 3D. Just the, what? Depth, the depth of field that you can, I mean, it's not obviously, but right. the depth that you can see in images feels 3D and it's better than any TV that I've seen. I think the first people to make it, it's been around since probably 2007. I, yeah, I was going to say, I think I've heard this term for a while, but they're probably crazy expensive. Sony made an 11 inch TV in 2007 for, I mean, it must've been two or $3,000. And what so then, do with that? I mean, it was a bedside TV for rich people. Yeah. And then maybe in 2012, LG and Samsung started making some, but they were $8,000 for a 55-inch TV. So since then, I've wanted one, but I'm not going to spend $8,000. So yeah. I keep telling myself, when our TV breaks and when the price falls below $1,500, maybe I'd rather it be 1000 so it's not as much of a conversation. <laughs> I don't have to but, convince myself or the family that it's worth it. Yeah, so what's the deal now? What's your hot tip? It's at 1700 this year. Oh, so you're really um, pushing your limits. It's getting close. I feel like next year is finally my time. But so you can get, it's an LG. I have to look up the actual specs of this one. I mean, there's not a lot of OLEDs out there, so you would find the right one if you looked for it. But it's their C8 series, 55-inch, and it is $1699. I don't know. For me, it's better than 4K. It's better than any of the like LCD LEDs that people get now. It'll just make you watch even more TV. Is that a sale price at one store, or is that just the starting price for this? That model? is a Black Friday deal for this TV that LG set. So you can get it on Amazon, you can get it on Best Buy. You can get it pretty much anywhere that you can find these TVs. I found one site that seems so shady that was selling it for $1,300. Like, these I, fell off a truck somewhere. I couldn't convince myself to buy that. So yeah. maybe next year that'll yeah. be a legitimate retailer. But anyway, the best Black Friday deal... This is, this is your one deal for the year. Yeah. And you can't even use it yourself, but you're so excited. You I, just, it with I want other people to be happy. Yeah. And then one day I'll also be happy. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Peter. Our special guest today on the Most Useful Podcast Ever is Ron Caps, who is a funny car driver, a very successful one, based out in California, and is in town today to talk to us about what funny car drag racing is and how crazy it feels. Welcome to our podcast. (laughs) That's an introduction I haven't had yet, I gotta say. (laughs) (laughs) So I can say, Kevin's also here, you know a little bit more about drag racing than I do. I had never seen it really until we were talking about having you on this podcast. And I looked at it and I saw the stat that you go from zero to 100 miles an hour in one second. Is that right? Actually, less than one second. It's at about (laughs) eight, eight tenths of a second. And to be honest with you, from a stop, standing start, I'm going 100 miles per hour in about 60 feet. 
which is less than a second, but it's that 60 feet, which completely boggles people's minds. That's unbelievable. Like how, okay, I've heard about G's. I know like G's are a thing. I'm not a person who feels G's very often. What is that? <laughs> I mean, do you just get blasted into your seat to what degree? Like is your face blasted yeah, so to, yeah, to give you an example, which I'm impressed you haven't asked about the word funny car yet. Usually that's the first thing <laughs> well, somebody We'll get there. We'll yeah, get there. Yeah, I think yeah. so. But she went right past it. Was That's impressive. Usually people go, funny car? What's that mean? But we will talk about that. <laughs> Driving one now is about five and a half or six Gs on the run. Now, what's more impressive when I tell people is it's about four and a half, five at the launch. When the clutch comes in about one and a half seconds into the run, it plants you back even harder. It can go upwards of six Gs. When I hit the parachutes to stop me uh-huh. at the end of the race, it's negative eight or nine Gs. Oh, see, I was going to say, what's more taxing, the acceleration or the deceleration? Well, before we started wearing head and neck devices, like the Hans that you've probably heard about, mm-hmm. that was way more taxing. I would wake up the next mornings and not be able to lift my head out of bed. Oh, wow. I mean, it was because it would just rip all the neck muscles. So now that we have the head and neck device, I've got a strap that holds my helmet from moving. My helmet, in fact, when I'm buckled in, will only move about an inch forward and maybe an inch backwards. And it's one little tiny area that's free. So those negative Gs won't yank my head because our heads weigh so much. People right. forget how much that big noggin weighs that you're walking around with. And it's it's a lot of weight to be thrown around. So the positive Gs are a lot until you hit the shoots, And then the negative Gs remind you of what you just did. It's like <laughs> time travel. And then let's talk about the funny car. I know there are different categories. It looks to me like it's one of those nitro drag racers combined with just a car. Is that right? Yeah, very good. (laughs) You're making this easy. Usually, uh, I have to explain to people the term funny car. Back in the day, dragsters came around and and people were going to a junkyard, getting an engine out of a car and building a frame out of a bunch of tubing and making a dragster. And that's when we used to see the old pictures of the dragster and the engine in front of the driver. Well, then somebody decided they would try to make a car, a regular car, put a dragster engine in it and somehow make that car go faster. And in order to do so, you had to kind of move the body around in order for the engine to stick out of the hood the right way. So they would move. When you looked at it, they'd actually cut another wheel well out in the back (laughs) to make the body back far enough to make the dragster engine work in a car. Ah. Then they would cut things up and make it lighter. Well, as that evolved, all of a sudden you're seeing cars with two rear wheel wells. And it looked really funny, and some announcer termed it a funny car. (laughs) That's all it took. And then it just kind of, over the years... Now it's carbon fiber, fiberglass bodies Uh that are on a shell of basically a tube frame with 11,000 horsepower. So that's kind of how it worked out, and they're still called funny cars. What do they weigh? Well, with me, they're about 2,400 pounds, 2,300 pounds. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it's 11,000 horsepower. Yeah, I was going to say that's... If you imagine one cylinder in my car makes more horsepower than a complete NASCAR engine. Wow. In fact, quite a bit more. Just one cylinder. And 2,400 pounds is, like, less than a, the average compact car weighs, like right? nothing. Yeah. Well, and way less. Yeah. yeah. Compact cars, you know, 3,000 yeah. plus pounds. Unless it's a Prius, then <laughs> yeah. probably quite a bit less. The only reason I know all these things is because I watched YouTube for the last, like, hour trying to figure out how all this stuff works. <laughs> and all my explosions are probably on there, right? The first things that pop up when you Google my name, it's just huge fireball explosions. and. <laughs> yeah, well, that's one thing I wanted to ask about. Why the fire on the sides of the car? Why does that happen? You mean the header flames? Is that what yeah, they're called? Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> okay. When you see pictures of the cars during the day, you don't see the flames because it's during the day. But at night, we have these eight-foot flames out of the exhaust. And we burn nitromethane, which is a very volatile, very dangerous fuel. 
but because these crew chiefs are so good, they can put it under pressure, and that's what makes the 11,000 horsepower. And it's an incredible, tricky fuel to put together and make it work in an engine, but that's what produces that great horsepower and the flames. So what's the hard part? I mean, we were watching it earlier, and it seems like keeping the thing under control has to be it, right? Or- yeah. You know, I posted some really cool stuff on YouTube of little camera angles I threw in little cameras playing around on weekends that we would test and not at a race. And it's funny, even for me to watch it again, to watch what goes on in the car is incredible. And I'm the one that does it. And I forget about it when I'm driving, but there's so much steering going on in the funny car that as a fan or somebody in the grandstands, you wouldn't see the car moving around yet. And then car camera shows me what we call sawing away on the wheel. Oh. Because the funny car, unlike the top fuel dragster that you see, where it's long and skinny with a right. wing on the back, yeah. same engines in a top fuel dragster compared to a funny car. The funny car, the dragster 300 inches long. The funny car is 125 inches long with the engine in front. So it's basically two feet in front of me is that 11,000 horsepower engine. Uh-huh. And I have to look around it during the run. And then I have this body over it. So it's very hard to see out of. And then the body provides downforce. But they're very evil handling because they're short, stiff, and they've got that engine right in front. So it's a lot of driving just to make it what looks like go straight. Right. I mean, they look. you can even see they look kind of like squirrely as they're going down. The There's middle. not one run I've made, and I've been doing this 25 years, that ever did it go straight where I barely move the wheel. Really? It's always, with a funny car, it's, it's not, are you ever going to be on fire or crash? It's like, when and how many times? The funny car is just, that's what the nature is. It, it's just a very exciting thing to drive, but it's very evil to drive. Like, very... <laughs> control chaos is what I call it. It's just like the world's flying apart for 3.8 seconds and you're trying to hang on to it. Yeah. So all that being said, you know, for our listeners, is there a part of driving this that is at all like driving a regular car? There's a gas pedal, I guess. No. Like I've gone and tested with NASCAR and gone for a day driving one of those cars in circles and you get out and I get in my rental car and I feel like i am been in a normal car, just a better car. Mm-hmm. And it's, you sit on the left like you do in a normal car. Whereas the funny car, we sit right in the middle our steering wheel is a little butterfly steering wheel. It's not even a full steering wheel. My brake is a handbrake, so I sit in the car, and the, the brake sticks up above, and I reach over, and as I pull it, that's my brake. I don't ever get out of it and get into a rental car or another car and think, ooh, this kind of feels the same. What made you feel ready to jump into one of these things for the first time? Watching my heroes, Don the Snake Perdome, the Snake and the Mongoose, and all these guys I watched when my dad would take me to tracks when I was a kid, and I would see them out of control, on fire, upside down, and jump out and raise their arms like they were Stallone, (laughs) you know, and I thought, man, that is, you know, all my friends wanted to be firemen and astronauts, and I was like, I want to be a funny car driver. Wow. What's, like, the craziest sort of anecdote or experience you've had? Was there a time when you, like, got it under control and you thought you couldn't, or? Believe it or not, I've had, you know, some of the huge explosions you see online, and fires, but probably the worst and scariest one was a couple years ago in Indianapolis, the U.S. Nationals, our biggest race the NHRA has. We only can get out of the car. We have a roof hatch. I'm sure you've seen it where we pop out to do the interviews. We flip it open when I get unbuckled, and I pop out and slide down the car and do the interviews. Well, the car went into the sand trap. No parachutes opened. I went into the sand trap upside down, and there's a net to stop us from going any further. And it's stuck in the net, and they couldn't get the car flipped over to get me out. And then there's no getting out of a side window. The body is attached to the frame, so I couldn't crawl out anywhere, and I'm trapped in there. My crew guys are back at the starting line, probably half a mile away at that point. And they're watching this big screen, and they're talking to me on the radio, and I'm starting to panic because I've got so much air in a bottle that uh, if I'm ever unconscious and on fire, I've got fresh air to breathe until the firemen can get you out. 
well, I'm in there quite a long time, and they could not get me out. And I started freaking out, like the claustrophobic feeling. Wow. And that was probably, believe it or not, like I wasn't hurt, and I didn't catch fire. But yet, that was one of the scariest moments, probably to this day, that I've had. Wow. Yeah, I mean, being inside like a rocket engine that's upside down <laughs> with the escape hatch underneath yes. you. Can't imagine why that'd be scary. <laughs> Have you ever been in Smithsonian? Uh, off, not for a long off time. Off topic. And, yeah, it's been a long time. And you go look at Apollo and some of those little compartments those early astronauts sat in, that's mind-blowing how much how little a room they have. And it reminds me of what I do, and I couldn't imagine being trapped flying down and landing in the ocean in one of those things. It's funny you say that. I actually I saw the movie First Man recently, and I thought, this doesn't look very fun. These are really, like, tiny, tiny containers these guys are shooting around on. But we're talking about how many Gs it was. I was going to say this kind of sounds like astronaut training. Like, you'd yeah. probably be good at that. Yeah, I was going to ask, have you ever talked to an astronaut about this um, kind of Yeah, actually. What's funny is the G-forces we go through are more than anything on the planet except a fighter pilot, which can go upwards of 9 Gs. Space shuttle pilots, when they get shot up, are about 4.85 Gs, sometimes a little over 5. But we, we're well over that. So it's pretty crazy when you think that we do all that in a short amount of time. And we don't sustain it long enough like a fighter pilot that we would need a G-suit. But we do go higher than anything else but a fighter pilot. That's amazing. That's pretty cool to be able to say. So, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for real. Is, huh? <laughs> One last question. I saw online that, does this really destroy the engine? Is the car just done when you finish one of these things? Or? Most of the time, yes. And not because you destroy it. Sometimes you do. But they do take it completely apart. And this is what the coolest thing is a fan. I mean, your listeners that have been to an NHRA race, they know. The ones that haven't, when you go, you buy a ticket to go to a race. Mm -hmm. Unlike NASCAR or IndyCar where you sit in the grandstands or a football game or anything. When you buy a ticket NHRA, you actually it's it's a pit pass included. So you actually go in and interact, but you can stand a foot away from these teams, and there's nine crew guys and girls that tear them apart, complete down to the bare block, pistons out of it, everything out, put it back together in less than 40 minutes and have it started back up. Oh, wow. Now, these engines take four people to start them. I don't have a key I can turn. So you can't even go down to the local place and get your oil changed for, you know, in less <laughs> yeah. than an hour while you're waiting. Yeah. They completely tear it down. And so the cool thing about fans coming to one of our races, the gearheads and the people that do it yourselfers, they get to watch this. And it's an amazing thing to see. And then they go into grandstands and watch what just happened and watch these nine people put it together. And they watch me step on the gas and go 330 miles an hour. And right in front of their eyes, which is another crazy thing. That is so cool. Do you get pulled into place or something at the starting line? Like yeah. you're not driving yourself to the starting no, line. No, no. They have a tow vehicle and actually pull me up, strap me in about five minutes before it's my turn. And then they push me up to where the water box is. We call it the water box where I do the burnout to heat the tires. But it, like I said, it takes three or four people to start the engine. So once they pull me up there, then the starter, when the next pair in front of us runs, he'll say, all right, you ready? And the next two, you nod your head, and they start our cars. And there's a whole process of starting, and then they drop the body down. And then the crew chief will wave me in and say, there you go. Wow. That's don't, cool. Don't mess it up. Don't mess <laughs> it up. Yeah. Here you go. It's a perfectly good car. Don't mess it up. <laughs> When's your next race? Our season's coming down to an end. We just finished the countdown, which is our playoffs. It's a six-race playoff. And again this year, we're fighting for a championship, which is cool. We've kind of been... In the middle of it, we won the world championship two years ago and almost went back-to-back -back last year. And here, 2018, had another chance to uh, win a championship. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, uh, do you say good luck in drag racing or is it the... I'll take good luck. I'll okay. take break, <laughs> a, break a leg. I'll take any of that. Awesome. Well, good luck and thank you for coming by. Yeah, thanks for yeah, having thanks. me. Thanks. All right.
right. So we're here for your favorite segment, but Eleanor, how would you say this? Black Friday facts. Black Friday facts. <laughs> that rhymes yeah. a little. There's the, some rhyming the stress, there. The stress on that. This is why we need Jackie. This is I really know. what happens when Jackie goes Everything away. Everything falls apart. Yeah. No way. It's better without Jackie. Ooh, a hot wow. take from Peter. <laughs> Don't edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Thanksgiving is uh, is coming up. Yeah, I think when you hear this, <laughs> It'll be Black here. Friday will be tomorrow <laughs> well, or something. Yeah, it'll yeah. be happening. There are now like multiple ways to spend your money, which we we'll get into. I mean, the sales started two weeks ago. It's the, so I weird. I mean, the sales, sales are all the time now, and there's Prime Day in July, so... Right. And Cyber Monday on Monday. Oh, we're getting to that, Peter. Oh, sorry. It's part of the facts. Um, Cyber Monday facts. <laughs> but so to start out with, I have an adjacent fact about Thanksgiving for you guys. Okay. So it used to be, it was not always the fourth Thursday of November. Okay. And apparently in 1939, the Retail Dry Goods Association had a little chat with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and they were like, hey, if the holiday season isn't starting till after Thanksgiving and it's on the last Thursday, the retail sales are going to be pretty low. Interesting. So Roosevelt was like, all right, great. We'll just make Thanksgiving a week earlier. So it was supposed to be November 30th that year. And he just like made it a whole week earlier. <laughs> FDR but, had unlimited power. <laughs> but didn't make the announcement until October. Yeah. Well, that was what happened. Your train ticket. People, yeah. had, people had already made holiday plans and they were like well, we're not going to just change because FDR <laughs> says so. And so a lot of people continue to celebrate Thanksgiving on the day that they were expecting it and call the imposter holiday Franksgiving. Franksgiving. That's great. What a 1939 burn. <laughs> I want to still celebrate that. Franksgiving? How yeah. would you yeah, celebrate that? I don't know. Thursday before. So yesterday was Franksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. We missed we it. We missed it. Oh, bummer. Next year. We'll another next another year. Franksgiving past. Yeah. But by 1949, Congress was like, fine, FDR, like, you can have what you want. And so now Thanksgiving is the fourth Thursday in November, regardless of how people feel about imposter Thanksgiving. And the phrase Black Friday started being applied to the day after Thanksgiving in Philadelphia, actually, because Philly would always host the Army-Navy football game on Saturday. So you'd have the Thursday, then the Friday, and then the Saturday. And apparently parking and traffic was just so hellish that the police just started calling it Black Friday Wait. because they hated it so So it was much. originally a negative thing, which very, I'm not surprised very negative. And like sort of about shopping because like people would, I guess, come in early or like take the day off to like go shopping, but... I have a Black Friday facts challenge. Ooh. I don't know if this is true, but I thought Black Friday was because companies go in the black from all the stuff they sell. Peter, you gotta wait for me to get to the oh, facts. I'm ruining... <laughs> <laughs> this is why we don't invite you normally. But this is... So it was a negative term, and then retailers were upset that it was so negative. And so in the 80s, they did like an image campaign to be like, oh, well, we're not going to be in the red. We're going to be in the black. Like, that's why it's Black Friday. Because so many people care about the retailers. Exactly. That's what this is about. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get you guys up Basically. In, the, in the plus. I mean, they moved a whole holiday. Yeah. You know? Okay. So now we're into like the other days that people have made up because apparently one like shopping day is not enough for us. Small Business Saturday was started in 2010 by American Express. Uh-huh. Small Business Saturday is actually a registered trademark to American wow. Express, which strikes me as odd. And it was originally co-sponsored by Boston Mayor Thomas M. Medino, <laughs> RIP. Yeah. Yeah. That struck me as very strange because I thought that it was like a grassroots, like feel good, like small so this, business So this was thing. my introduction to like the terrible power of social media was that <laughs> I worked for a consulting company and American Express was our client. So I knew, I learned through that that Small Business Saturday was from American Express mm. just to make themselves money. But at the same time, this was like early days of Facebook and I saw people really promoting it hard. Like we should really support the small business owners. And I was like, no, you're all, the wool's being pulled over your eyes. Yeah. But it still did help them if it drove you to the store. 
Yeah, I guess that's You're still, true. It's still a I would benefit. say I'm pro small business Saturday. Maybe just don't use your credit card. <laughs> that's, Go in that, with cash. that's what we promote here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cash only, popular yeah. mechanics. So small business Saturday. This is funny. In response to a Black Friday, British bookshops in 2015 offered civilized Saturday. It's <laughs> like the most British thing ever. But uh, like there was one bookstore that they gave their customers Prosecco and you could compete in a posture competition. Posture <laughs> competition? You, like putting a book on your head and like walking down the street That's and keeping oh balanced. And then another one uh, gave free tea and cakes and a complimentary hand massage. <laughs> so I say let's bring Civilized Saturday yeah. to the U.S. What we do have is Opt Outside, which REI does on Black Friday. It closes all of its stores and still pays its employees, but they get to take time outside. And so that's a kind of a cool thing they do. This year, they're also giving a million dollars to the University of Washington to support studies into how time outside impacts our health. My guess is positively. <laughs> be great um, if it came yeah. back the other way. <laughs> like, like, stay we've inside. Been, we've been doing it wrong. More time on Come your shop, phone. guys. <laughs> There's also Cyber Monday, obviously, which was started in 2005, I think. It was the online arm of the National Retail Federation. Powerful. So powerful. Wasn't it dry um, goods before? It was, yeah. That's what all retail was back then. (laughs) And then Giving Tuesday is the last one, which is sort of like after you've already spent all of your money. Have you not heard of that one? These are all I didn't really know about that. These are all in the same week. I was even gonna ask. Like those are all these are all in sequence. You have Thursday, Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, the Lord's Day, Cyber Monday, (laughs) and Giving Tuesday. So after you've already like gotten all of your material goods, then you can make a donation. So whoever started Giving Tuesday, wouldn't it have been smarter to do it the Tuesday before people spent all their money? I think so too, but then people are like stressed out about like buying stuff for Thanksgiving, getting their turkey, whatever. The 92nd Street Y started Giving Tuesday. Which... Oh. Uh, that all sounds great. That's yeah. a lot of facts. That's yeah. a lot of facts. Are you satiated? I, yeah, especially, I'm sorry I ruined a couple of them. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. I'm still thankful I went so we should probably explain why you're only getting to hear Kevin and me this this week. Jackie's in Japan. Yeah, like across the whole ocean. <laughs> Two oceans from here. So you're stuck with us. But it's good news because we're going to do a little guide to buying a laptop since this is what people buy during the holidays. Yeah, I need one. Mine's getting, it still works, but it's very slow. And just in terms of how old I think a computer should be, mine's like a 2013 MacBook. It's like getting up there. Yeah, it is sad when you read these things like this will last you three or four years and then you have to spend another $1,200 on your next one. Yeah. But I guess that's kind of the way it is. Now that we spend $1,000 on phones, maybe 1200 for a computer doesn't feel that bad anymore. Yeah. All right, let's get to the laptops. So I think everybody knows the CPU is the brain in the computer. Yeah. But most of them are Intel. There's another company that makes them called AMD, but nearly like probably 90% of the laptops that you find are going to be Intel. Yeah, because AMD has like no chime. There's like a commercial in it. Right? That's yeah. true. Um, and for a while, they didn't even make fast processors. So it's just the budget computers. So it didn't really matter. Okay. But anyway, so for Intel, you kind of want to have an i5 or an i7 processor they also have i9 but that's if you're like a video editor or something but the thing that i thought was interesting you can see what generation it is it's not like after they made i5s they went to i7 um they just improve the performance of the i5 with each generation so you look at the there's a it's i5 dash something and so like if it's dash 8700 that's the eighth generation i5 Oh. So they're up to nine now. So if it's seven, that's two years old. And that's probably as far back as you want to go to be comfortable without just, you know, might as well spend the money for the one that's a little newer yeah. than that. So that was an easy thing for buying a laptop, just an easy way to read it. You yeah. want at least i5. There are Celeron processors that are probably in Chromebooks and things like that. Those like the budget processors. That's below i5. Just don't really want to mess with that. If you're doing email and like a couple web pages, Celeron's fine. But if you're yeah. going to have, even if you're going to have like a lot of browser windows open or watching some video, just don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah go just, up a little bit. 
And then GPU, I learned from Alex, is just the, it's the graphics processor for if you play oh, yeah, video games. I feel games. like I've been reading about these a lot lately. Yeah. The nice thing was you basically don't have to learn about them unless you're going to get a computer for gaming. Okay. But Meryl's not really into... So we didn't have to worry about that at all. Okay. Because most of them don't have discrete GPUs. They're just built into the CPU. Oh, so it's like an optional thing if you really need the extra... Right. If you're going to play games, you want okay. a separate GPU that's built onto there, and then it's just look for NVIDIA. Those are the good ones. Um, and if you really want to spend money, you get the GTX 1070. There's a 1050 that's a little cheaper. It's a little slower. Okay. But RAM? Do you know what RAM is? I feel like you were talking about this. You knew what it was. This, this is, is the one the, that always uh, got me. This is the memory. And yeah, the random access memory. But it's the... Sub- oh, this, this is like how much stuff you can do at once, right? Yeah. This okay. is what makes your computer faster, because it's putting this just sort of in the front of the computer's mind. So if it doesn't have to reach deep for this stuff. So if okay. it's running in RAM, it can just grab it and it can make things perform quicker. Something I learned with Merrill's computer habits, you need a lot of RAM if you are married to someone who leaves open 30 browsers at a time. That's why I do that. It bogs so. down your computer so yeah. much. So maybe get 16 gigs of RAM for your next computer. Okay. Eight's good for most people unless you do stuff like that or if you're doing things that are a little harder to, just yeah. a little harder on the, on the computer. Just for the record, what are the things that are harder, like, Photo editing, video editing. It's pretty much it. Games? Gaming and okay. anything that just is going to really pull off of your drive. But yeah, it's mostly photos and videos and gaming. Okay. Storage. Nobody really sells hard drives anymore. It's all solid state. So that was interesting. Last time I knew anything about computers, they were all like solid state was the new thing and it was expensive. They're lighter, they're faster, they're quieter. You don't have to really worry about them because they're all you're going to find. And then size. Size always got me because I don't have a lot of music. See, I have a ton of music. My question is, do people even want bigger hard drives anymore? Because everything's in the cloud, right? Does it matter? It's true. I would, just because you're installing all these different programs. And if you are playing games, you have to install those games and things like that. I don't know, 256 gigs, you're going to be fine for a normal person. And that's probably like pretty cheap now. That's not like a crazy big hard drive, right? It's not bad. I mean, the entry-level MacBooks start at 128. Most of the PCs that you'll find that are 800 to $1,200 or probably 256 and up. And for most people, that's really all you need. All right, should we do a lightning round of what computer to buy if you don't want to think about this and just yeah. want to describe yourself? Yeah. Okay. For most people, this is if you are a Windows person, uh, okay. if you're a PC person, the best laptop, at least the ones I looked at, yeah. which I feel like is always the thing in the <laughs> back. The, right. So the Dell XPS 13, okay. 9370. It's $1,150. Good laptop. It seems like laptop prices are pretty stable. Yeah, I mean, you can get the super cheap ones. Those aren't going to last very long. They're not going to yeah. do it. You're just going to find out what its limitations are at some point, and that's going to be frustrating. It seems like we were just saying that phones cost $1,000 now, but it seems like a good laptop has always been like 1200 bucks. Right. You're not going to play a ton of video games on it. But like, it's going to be great for most people. It's like about that price. And it's been that right. way since like I was in college, I think. Right. All right. So and then if you're a Mac person, I think the MacBook Pro, just the 13-inch. So the new MacBook Air came out. Everyone's super excited about that, but... It's only $100 cheaper than the base-level MacBook Pro. Oh, I was kind of sucked in by that, but I didn't realize the price was so different. And the processor is so much They're slower. So close, the MacBook Air is 1.6 gigahertz. The Pro is 2.2 or 2.3. I think it's 2.3. So that's nearly a 50% jump in speed, which is a huge noticeable difference when you're actually working on the computer Yeah, for 100 bucks, You get the same storage, the same, I think it's 128 gig drive. Yeah. But you just get a much better processor. You know, the battery life's a little shorter. And, oh, it, it weighs a quarter of a pound more. I don't like the wedge shape of the MacBook Air, so I'm sticking with the Pro. And yeah. I'm, an, I'm an Apple guy, so this is relevant to me. I think this is good to know. The best budget laptop that I saw out there, it's $700. It's the Asus VivoBook S15. 
It's kind of cool. It has like a little dash of color on the side. It's fun. It has this cool hinge so that when you flip the screen open, it actually tilts your keyboard a little bit so that your typing angle is better and oh. more comfortable. Yeah, it's a 1.6 gigahertz i5, like eighth generation processor. Fine. You'll be plenty happy. Has eight gigs of RAM, which you don't want to go below, but that's fine. Yeah. And also, if you are somebody who still likes having the old USB-A ports, mm-hmm. it has three of them. Yeah. So if you're like a thumb drive guy or you still charge your your phone from your laptop or something, you've got the ports there instead of the MacBooks where you just have USB-C and have to get an adapter if you don't have the newest. It's a huge hassle. All right, Chromebooks, super cheap. Can't do anything because everything's stored online. There's no real onboard memory. But $265 for an Acer Chromebook 14. They're that cheap? Wow. I mean, that's four gigs of RAM. It's only a 32 gig drive. But this is like the computer that you give to a kid in middle school to work on his papers or you give to your grandmother because she wants to send you emails or see pictures of your adorable four-month-old baby that's at home seeing her first snow today. Aw. All right, let's see. Laptop for video editors, MacBook Pro 15-inch. And it's also, you just upgrade the heck out of these things when you're buying them. Yeah. And, you know, by the time you get to this thing, it's the 2.9 gigahertz processor, 16 gigs of RAM. What is that, like $4,000? $2,789. What a deal. So, gaming laptop, we're going to go through this one real quick. Razer Blade 15. $2,600. $2,600. It has an i7. has a six-core processor. I didn't really realize. I always heard dual-core and yeah. figured then it, it could like, do two things. No, there were three cores. Six things at a time from your processor, which makes sense if you're running a video game that's so graphic-heavy. That's it. We got through that in what? That was very fast. Yeah. Jackie's going to be so proud of us. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Okay, so Roy, we haven't given you any forewarning, but we brought you here to rule on a particular scenario we're interested in this Thanksgiving. Okay. Okay, so your normal carving knife mm-hmm. is dull, you haven't sharpened it in too long, mm-hmm. but you have an electric carving knife, but I don't know, the cat chews on the power cord or something. Hmm. Can you carve your turkey with a super sawzall? Yeah, you could. I mean, it certainly wouldn't be ideal. I think it would be messy. It would be loud. <laughs> as far as it being a sanitary means to carve your turkey. Just got a new blade. Yeah. you. I would go jigsaw. Uh, yeah, no, I, I would do the entire turkey with, with the, the sawzall. sawzall. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I mean, I'd get a long blade, the longest blade that I could get. Get a very long fork um, to hold the meat with? Yeah, I think a standard meat fork would be fine. I'm trying to picture how this would go down. Well, put it this way. If you had a very brave assistant, all right, and you were careful, (laughs) and the assistant is really careful with that meat fork, watching his or her hands relative to the blade, because you want to use a sawzall with two hands, you know? I don't think you want to... Right, you couldn't be the fork operator in the... Right, right. So, yeah, and of course you wouldn't need the 15-amp sawzall. I think the 12-amp is more than enough. It's so not turkey. the super, just the regular right, sawzall. That's the, right, exactly. So I think a corded or cordless sawzall certainly would be more than enough power tool. Not having done it or even considered it, <laughs> I mean, I can't say... For sure, but the tool itself is more than up to the job. If you're going to remove the saw's foot, they all have a slide-off foot. You'd want to keep the chuck away from the turkey in case there's any dirt, sawdust, metal shavings embedded on that. The chuck gets pretty dirty. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's not meant for carving turkeys, obviously. Yeah. I'm thinking about it, like if you put a, like, a little plastic bag over the chuck and secured it with a rubber band, it might be a little more sanitary than the sewer pipe that you just cut 
couple hmm. of weeks before with the sawzall, you know. Anyway, if you don't have a fresh blade, what would you clean the blade you already had with to prepare it for turkey uh, carving? I would say hot water and lots of dish detergent. I mean, the blade, they're like uh, high speed steel blades. I mean, you could clean it pretty well. I think you're not going to want to use like a, a wooden nail blade that's very coarse. It's going to produce a lot of turkey sawdust. <laughs> Maybe this is better for a Christmas ham. Just fewer bones to work around. Uh, and I think it would hold its shape a little better. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'd have to think about that one too. And we could do it. Well, look, I mean, we have a sawzall in the workshop. It's new, it's clean. We could bake a turkey and just serve it up. Popular mechanics. Thanksgiving. Turkey a la popular mechanics. So know. don't do it unless you have to. But if you have to, uh, it might work. The sawzall would be cleaner in any event than any number of other house construction tools, you know. So that's yeah. kind of useful. Right. <laughs> and I think next year we can talk about using the miter saw and the pumpkin roll. Uh, yeah, no, that would probably work just fine. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. That's our show, y'all. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Bettina Warshaw and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks, projects, science, and technology, check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening. <laughs>